0: First uh, is uh, James one verse five. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. And then we're reading from Proverbs chapter two verses one through ten. My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commands with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding, yes, if you call out for insight. And raise your voice for understanding. If you seek it like silver and search it for as a hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom for his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity, guarding the paths of justice and watching over the ways of his saints. Then you will understand righteousness and justice and equity every good path, for wisdom will come into your hearts, and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. That's the word of God.
1: Thank you, God. Thank you, Eric. Before we begin uh, preaching from uh, the book of Proverbs, uh, can I pray for us? Let's pray together. Father, guide us and lead us through your wisdom, found in the wisdom of Christ, in our ever-changing world. We pray that here we would resolve as a church to seek your wisdom, to look through the world through the ears and hearts of your Son, whose name we pray, amen. Well, during July, we are turning to the book of Proverbs, and in particular, uh, looking at it through the lens of Proverbs in the digital age. Uh, Anyone who has read through the book of Proverbs will know that this book is a collection of sayings. and. You know, on the surface level, it will seem random. It seems like the Proverbs just jumps arbitrarily from topic to topic to topic, so much so that it almost kind of seems like a bunch of random fortune cookies uh, that are scattered throughout its 31 chapters. Uh, This is why many people find Proverbs to be a challenge to really comprehend and understand, let alone what any of this has to do with Jesus. And how does this affect our relationship with God? Uh, But for us as believers to gloss over the book of Proverbs would be a huge mistake. Uh, As we just read in chapter two, there are God-glorifying reasons why we should be motivated to take some time to think through the book of Proverbs, maybe more so than we have in the past. Uh, Proverbs proved to us that the words of God have real meaning for us in the here and the now. It has real power in our lives. Uh, these words give us a pathway, a, a roadmap in understanding how we navigate our current life, our culture, our speech, our thoughts, our attitude and hearts and the behavior through this lens that we call wisdom. Uh, because if we don't think critically about God's wisdom working in our lives, it's inevitable that other competing wisdoms will try and take its place. And no more certain that is this then the digital age that we are living in right now. Uh, let, me, let me just paint a picture of this and I'll try and set the reason for why I believe we need the book of Proverbs more than ever. Uh, so June 29th, 2007, the proclaimed Jesus phone arrived into the market. Apple released the very first iPhone that was distributed to the world and so 16 years Later, we're celebrating its anniversary uh, this past week. According to the data that we have available right now, We have roughly seven billion smartphones in existence or about 86% of the population of people on the earth. The average American spends five and a half hours on their mobile devices each day. That number jumps to about seven and a half hours for the average American teenager, basically half of their waking hours online. If you were born after 2007, studies show that you will spend 44 years over the course of your life on your devices. According to the global tech care company Asurion, research shows that the average American checks their phones 96 times a day, that's once every 15 minutes, in a 24 hour day, the average American touches their phone 2,817 times per day, heavier users can reach over 5,000 touches, 40%, 47% of people self-report, self-report that they are addicted to their phones. According to Forbes magazine, in 2021, a world record 3.8 trillion hours were spent on mobile applications with hundred and seventy billion dollars spent alone on just mobile apps. And what this content is doing is creating competing wisdoms that face the Christian in every sphere of knowledge and, and relationship with new content being created at a blistering rate. There are 464 million podcast listeners with over 5 million podcasts globally, 70 million podcast episodes in 150 languages. Over 700,000 new videos are being uploaded to YouTube every single day, with over a billion hours of video per day being consumed. Twitch, the game streaming platform, had over 1.5 trillion hours of streams alone in 2021. So with all this consumption, one might assume that uh, It's all bad, but it's not actually all bad as much as you might assume that this sermon is just gonna be making you feel guilty. Uh, There are signs that much good has been accomplished, actually, in the smartphone era. Uh, GoFundMe, a crowdfunding resource, raised $15 billion since its inception towards those in need. Uh, Smartphones and devices have allowed for marginalized voices to enable to democratize injustices by giving them a voice to shed light on issues that would otherwise have gone unreported. The advancement of GPS and heart rate monitoring technology have saved lives that otherwise would have been lost. Health outcomes have greatly increased in the medical field through the advancement of technologies in the fields of heart disease and diabetes and cancer research. Organ donations through drone delivery has been a lifesaver and a game-changer. Agricultural technology is increasing in crop productivity, decreasing the use of water, fertilizer, and pesticides with greater efficiencies at lower prices. So, the real question that we need to ask ourselves now is how all of this is affecting us. According to the National Institutes of Health, Physically, those who report a higher cell phone usage report higher eye strain, neck pain, weight gain. Mentally, the research attributed greater loneliness, mood disorder for teenagers. Evidence from cross-sectional, longitudinal, and empirical studies implicate increases in mental distress, self-injurious behavior, dose-response relationship affecting their self-view, normalization of self-harm, chronic sleep deprivation, and negative effects on cognitive control, academic performance, and socio-emotional functioning. Carefully curated digital profiles and branding have made the commodification of self the biggest gold mine of the 21st century, with companies now using us as the product that generates revenue for companies to exploit our own weaknesses and longings into buying consumer goods. According to Amazon Scout, Amazon reportedly ships 1.6 million packages each day and makes, get this, $16.3 million in sale per second. Artificial intelligence is growing at its fastest rate ever with services like ChatGPT and Google Cloud leading the way in generating what once once took weeks and tons of people in market research to generate content in a matter of seconds with growing accuracy in its self-learning models. And just announced this month, the originator of the Jesus phone, Apple, is entering the game of virtual reality that Facebook turned meta is actively pushing. The Apple Vision Pro was announced to make our permanent dependence on our devices to permanent dependence of a world that we can create ourselves, augmenting our reality in the hopes that one day it might replace the physical world if they get their way. So, in hearing all of this, this can seem overwhelming for us, as believers. But to the reality for every generation of believers, not just those living in the 2000s, is that we are in need of a wisdom that transcends our current cultural moment, our technology, and lead us back to a sense of purpose. And so this is the beauty of the book of Proverbs. And so this month, we'll be covering the wisdom from Proverbs in the areas and spheres of the digital aid that has gripped us. Uh, social media, gossip, slander, uh, gender and sexuality. But, but today, I want to make the case for what true wisdom does. So I'll just state four things about wisdom and what true wisdom does for us here today. These are the four points that we'll talk about here. Uh, number one, uh, true wisdom leads us to Scripture. Number two, true wisdom leads us to the Lord. Number three, true wisdom leads us to transformation. And number four, true wisdom leads us to Christ. So let's just start with true wisdom leading us to Scripture, uh, our first point here today. Uh, We begin uh, in Proverbs 2, which is really in many ways an echo of Proverbs 1. Uh, the thesis statement of the entire book of Proverbs. Uh, you see, the intention of Proverbs is not just a book of quips and parables or sort of, you know, fortune cookie statements, but rather from, from the start, it's a book to dedicate, dedicated to unlocking the keys of life. All the sayings in the book of Proverbs are asking this broad-based question of whether something is wise or something is unwise. And what is the center of wisdom that we discover in this book? Wisdom is not centered on the individual, but rather wisdom is centered on God. And that the listening and hearing and understanding of God's words, scripture itself, causes us to find this key of life, his commandments, his thoughts, his ways. In other words, these collections of sayings in Proverbs are not just bound to the time and age of its three writers, Solomon, Agur, and Lemiel, But rather, these principles and wisdom sayings are the steady teaching of God throughout the course of the Old Testament, of the New Testament, and today. God's wisdom transcends every generation and every single age of human history, including our current digital one. So in these first four four verses that we see here in chapter 2, we see this, this father figure longing for his son to pursue God's wisdom with the strongest language to show how much our desires, our thoughts, our ears, our hearts, all of these desires long for the words of God, His commandments, His understanding, to be the guiding light for us. We are trying to live the way that God has cultured us to live through His words. So in this, we need to stop and remind ourselves of the essential doctrine of our understanding of Scripture, and that is this this word that we attribute to Scripture called sufficiency. When we think of the, you know, sort of the the character traits of the Word of God, if we had to describe God's Word, uh, we could use a lot of different words, you know, inerrant, infallible, authoritative, but, but we're reminded of the sufficiency of Scripture in Proverbs. It's a doctrine that fought against the idea that you needed some other worldly authority to help you to understand God's Word. You don't need a tradition or an outside culture or a magisterium to make Scripture known to you. You simply needed God's Word itself. Scripture is sufficient. Scripture, in other words, is enough to know that all that God is guiding us through in life is enough. It's why our confessional document, of our church, the Westminster Confession of Faith, states in its first chapter on scripture, if we can get that on the screen here, uh, that the whole counsel of God, uh, oh, so we don't have that? No, okay, sorry about that, it's okay. I'll just read it here. This comes from Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 1.6. The whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith and life, is either expressively set down in scripture or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from Scripture, unto which nothing at any time is to be added, whether by new revelations of the Spirit or traditions of men. So while there is no verse in Scripture that tells us, you know, thou shalt not use Snapchat, all right, or no Proverbs verse that tells us how much screen time is too much, the principles of Scripture gives us the wisdom to realize what is helpful to us or what is harmful for us. So how does wisdom take shape? The beauty and the hardship of Proverbs is that wisdom is not just mere information transfer. Wisdom is not information transfer. Wisdom is the whole heart, soul, mind, strength, applying of pursuing God's worth, of pursuing pursuing his pathway through what he has written. This is why when you look at verses 1 to 4 again in your bulletins, the language is active. Wisdom is actively listening with our ears, inclining our hearts in which sort of, you know, when we talk about the Old Testament's understanding of what the heart is, it was the center of the person's rational mind and will. It was to change the course of one's desires to pursue wisdom like a great treasure. It's adjusting the culture of your life to align with the culture of wise living. And to see other contrary cultures in the light of God's word. This is important for us because so often when we think about the role that technology is playing in our lives, here's the common adage that we often hear. Oh, technology is morally neutral. Technology is just a tool. And society and Christians can, can either use it, this tool, to either great good or great harm. But it's just a tool. It's morally neutral. However, sociologists have rightly called out that calling technology a mere tool is very misleading. To place technology in a vacuum as merely functional rather than formative is to dismiss the reality that technology has an end game, a direction, a point that it wishes to make about the purpose of the world and who gets to live in it. The sociologist Neil Postman in 1998, rightfully criticized that technology is not a tool but what he calls a telos, T-E-L-O-S. It creates its own culture in and of itself that means to assert something about the world. According to Postman, every technology has a philosophy that shapes the mind and codifies the world to become a part of the natural order of our society that goes unchallenged. So like the sky is blue, Wi-Fi exists. Our devices are accepted as a part of life, and unexamined, they control us in creating a culture of ethics and beliefs that designates our worth and sense of purpose. It becomes a telos in and of itself. And so Proverbs is reminding us that true wisdom leads us to the culture of God's telos before we enter into the culture of our technological landscape. Now, it teaches us to discern our technology in ways that can be shaped to the power of Scripture and Scripture's purposes and not the other way around. That a different culture can be created when we use these culturally formative changes in our technology and look for God's way and God's wisdom. So, what does this look like in history? Uh, 1517, October 31st, Martin Luther nailed his criticism of the abuses of the medieval Catholic Church, which he called his 95 Theses, to the door of Wittenberg Church. But a technological advancement that had swept through the world in his age allowed his ideas to spread. The printing press, which while it had been developed in Asia uh, centuries ago, uh, it reached its prominence in Europe during the Reformation. And it gave the ability for Martin Luther's work to be widely distributed and made its way to London, England, london england as quickly as 17 days after he did that which i know sounds like an eternity to us right now but back in 1570 it was lightning fast and so luther quickly became the world's first best-selling author and martin luther's translation of the new testament into german sold 5,000 copies in two weeks which again doesn't sound like much but but think about how revolutionary that would have been back in his day Martin Luther's books accounted for one-third of all books sold in Germany as his German Bible went through more than 430 editions. You see, technology aided in advancing God's purposes, spreading the movement of the Reformation to give voice to the reasoning that Scripture alone should guide our wisdom, that it was sufficient. So in this case we saw in history, technology's telos bended to the will of God's wisdom. And this is what leads us to our second point here today, that true wisdom leads us to not just Scripture, but to the Lord. True wisdom that is shaped by God's Word, that is shaping us more in the matter of thinking the right things, but loving the right things, that we are shaped to the desire of the very things of God Himself. Verse 5 and 6 of our text here today remind us that wisdom draws out the self-centeredness or pride when it comes to believing that we are wise, that true wisdom actually leads us to the fear of the Lord, and realize that it's not our knowledge that has given us the gift of wisdom, but, but God himself is the one blessing us with his knowledge, his understanding that comes from him alone. The words here for knowledge and understanding, um, the the word here for knowledge is related more than just sort of information, but knowledge here denotes a skill set in the original language. Uh, uh, Knowledge here is an ability, it's it's a competency. Knowledge, as as the biblical scholar Derek Kidner presents it, is an intimate practice of the presence of God. I think that's a great definition of knowledge, an intimate practice of the presence of God. And the word for understanding translated in your ESV is talking about the permission that God gives to receive his wisdom. The permission that God gives to receive his wisdom. So when you think about the word understanding in the book of Proverbs, it's like a government clearance, which some of you are intimately familiar with. You're only able to understand it because God has lawfully given you the ability to comprehend it. That's God's understanding. So, so taken together, knowledge and understanding, uh, what do we realize? Wisdom isn't just about knowing these sort of pithy phrases that are in the book of Proverbs. It's, it's a skill that God graciously gives to his people through his own permission for those who seek and desire him. It means that our greatest longings aren't for then the things of God to grant us the good life, But our greatest longing is for God himself, the great giver of these gifts. And this has huge implications for what it means to know and understand God and to seek the Lord and his wisdom in our lives today. Uh, In other words, Christianity isn't just a mere set of propositional beliefs and imparting that off to the next generation and calling that knowledge and understanding. It not simply going into just believing the right things don't get me wrong that's important but it's not enough it's not sufficient it's about loving the right things and specifically loving the right person loving the lord this is counter to us in christian circles with those who perhaps that all that we needed was just simply a christian worldview you know if we have a christian worldview it means we've sort of done it correctly Um, Now, now, to be fair, a Christian worldview is a great lens to see behind the curtain of our society and our world today, but that is not enough. That is not what changes us. Uh, The Christian philosopher James K.A. Smith, in, in his valuable work Desiring the Kingdom, is critical of this mindset that a Christian worldview is all that is necessary. He reminds us that information alone in our world is not enough. Why? His main thesis is this because we are ultimately humans that love things rather than humans that think things. Uh, He writes this in his book. Being a disciple of Jesus is not primarily a matter of getting the right ideas and doctrine beliefs in your head in order to guarantee proper behavior. Rather, it's a matter of being the kind of person who loves rightly, who loves God and neighbor, and is oriented to the world by the primacy of that Love. But you, we know this to be true in our own lives, don't we? Right? You ever wonder that even though we know the reality of smartphone addiction, the thinking of that truth doesn't shape us, does it? Why? Because our desires are still set towards the love of that device. You, you know it's bad for you. You know you shouldn't be spending every moment of silence, every red light looking into its gaze. But why doesn't your behavior change? See, because even though you think the right things, your desires are ultimately rooted in what the the device is telling you to love. Significance, meaning, influence, purpose that it's offering you. It's why the like button exists and why you feel empty when you've posted something that received way less likes than the post that you posted before. What's that what's going on with that? And why subsequently, Those in Silicon Valley who created the like button want nothing to do with it and have actually forbidden their children to use it. They recognize the device is breeding unfulfilled desires and leading to greater harm and not joy. Uh, In other words, it's not a bug of the technology that's leading to unfulfillment. It's actually a feature of it. But what would your life look like in relation to your technology if the main desire, your heart's first love, was God and his kingdom? What desires would change? What loves would have to be replaced? What would you fear instead of the fear of missing out? Or the fear of being out of touch? Or the fear of not being in the know? What if you replaced that fear with the fear of something different. Verse five speaks of that different kind of fear. That wisdom in the word properly helps us to realign our love to the fear of the Lord. That in God being our first love, he is also our first fear. Now it's important to define fear rightly. Um, I really like uh, the reformed theologian's John Murray's definition of the fear of the Lord. He calls the fear of the Lord the soul of godliness, the soul of godliness. What does he mean by that? In the sense that this is the kind of fear that draws us to a sense of veneration, of honor, a sense of awe, a sense of wonder, a sense of longing to be in the presence of the Lord because the fear of the unknown is drawing you towards him rather than pushing you away. The fear of the Lord, he argues, is not, is not the fear of wrath or judgment. That is not what the fear of the Lord is in this passage. It's, it's the fear which focuses adoration and love, sort of this awe of the majesty and the holiness of God. In other words, the fear of the Lord in you isn't just the worry that God knows what you've been looking at on your phone. Although, trust me, he does. The fear of the Lord is something that transcends your own sinfulness and your own sense of self-condemnation. The fear of the Lord leads you to adoration, knowing that the Lord still loves you, that the Lord still pursues you with grace, that the Lord wants to clothe you with his wisdom. He wants you to see that all things are in relationship to him, even your relationship with technology. This is so important for us to grasp because as Proverbs rightfully claims, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Because you've centered yourself from being the source of wisdom and understanding and instead you rightfully give that place to God, where it's properly due. And so if that's in the right order, then your obedience to God isn't obedience done in the fear of dread or punishment. It's done in obedience, knowing God's glory and majesty. You living out in reverence and worship in your everyday patterns of life stemming from a proper fear of the Lord. On college campuses worldwide, students are reporting that in order to maintain their social status, they need to go to sleep with their phones in their bed, waiting for the text messages or phone calls from friends who are growing increasingly depressed, self-conscious, disillusioned, and anxious. The telos of this fear is found in this phrase that they gave uh, to people studying this. They are dreadfully fearful of being told that you weren't there for me when I needed you. That fear is driving these students to constantly feel this state of what what, uh, sociologists are now calling permanent connectivity. Attempting to be an omnipresent person in a finite body leading to this sense of feeling tired, exhausted, but seeing no alternative because of the belief that the fear of punishment and judgment of their friends is a far greater loss than what they're experiencing mentally. They feel stuck. And so the phrase pops up that those who are drug addicted often claim. It's okay. I know I have a problem, but I can stop any time. But for us, as the people of God, knowing that we are tethered to an omnipresent God who listens, who hears us, we know that the validations of our digital cycles can only be a shadow of the relationship and communion that we have with God. The one who is able to take our great anxieties, our deepest longings for intimacy, our greatest validations of love, and find them waiting for us at the cross of Jesus Christ. You see how incredible this shift is? The wisdom that is present here says to us, you know, the point of life is not self-orbiting ourselves to stay connected to the people we love so that we can receive love. But true wisdom is saying, enter into self-forgetfulness. And see that you are already loved by God and there is no button you need to press, no tweet you need to send in solidarity, no picture that you post that will ever change the way that God has already loved you. You already have access to him through Christ. You have already been made clean. You have already been sanctified. So why live your life as though you have not been cared for? as though you haven't been restored, as though you haven't been redeemed? Why commit yourself to the hopelessness of these perpetual cycles? Why not open your love to be changed by the fear of the Lord? Because when you do, you'll discover our third point here today, that true wisdom leads to transformation. With the Word of God in our minds and hearts, And with the Lord as our center, our first two points, we find that He transforms us in a way that technology could only ever dream to shape our realities. Look at verse 7 of our text here today, that He stores up sound wisdom for the upright that God is a shield to those who walk in integrity, that he guards the path of justice and watches over the way of his saints, that the centering on the Lord leads to righteousness, justice, equity, every good path of our world that is trying to find today, by the way. Uh, In other words, before these words became the cultural words of our moment, they were actually in scripture. These words, this Lord becomes a pleasantness to our own souls in transforming our ways. In other words, true wisdom as it's being offered by the Lord is presenting to us a counter-liturgy of our digital space. Now what what does this word mean, counter-liturgy? A counter-liturgy of our digital space is a term coined by Dr. Felicia Wu Song, uh, a Christian cultural sociologist of media and digital technologies. Uh, she rightfully argues in her book, uh, which is called Restless Devices. Um, just as an aside, if you're going to read one book on a topic this month, read Restless Devices. It's, it's the best book in the treatment of this topic. Um, he, she writes this about counter-liturgies, that our technologies are begging us to enter into a daily liturgy of action. So a call to worship at the start of your m- morning to check your notification bar a prayer of dedication towards your next story feed, a a sermon from your favorite podcast. This is kind of like the liturgy of a worship service. There is a way that your phones are transforming the liturgy of your heart and mind and forming your desires, shaping the loves of your mind and heart. And the consequences take you away from true wisdom, can take you away from the real presence of what is being offered before you. Dr. Bu Song shares the story of how counter-liturgies can help us to reimagine what the human experience of being transformed and shaped by a personal God can look like. Uh, so she shares the story in her book about the Cantor Art Center in Stanford, uh, who, like uh, many art centers, have digital tours available of the art center on their phones. You know, it's easy to download for, those who visit, for visitors who want explanations of the art pieces that are available. However, Cantor Art Center started noticing a problem by making that digital tour available, and you can guess what that is. Rather than looking at the artworks in question right in front of them, the visitors did the digital tour completely looking on their phones, barely looking at these masterpieces that were directly in front of them. So Cantor Art Center decided to run a counter liturgy. They instead handed out colored pencils and paper and invited a different kind of visitor experience than the digital tour. So rather one, one experience uh, and the digital tour sort of situated in uh, con- consumption, they offered a visitor experience, a counter-liturgy of creation, communion with art, rather than disregard. When a person turned the corner in the gallery to see people lying on the floor, pencils and papers, staring intently at the art in front of them and drawing how it made them feel, there lies a real different kind of connectivity other than the passing of listening on their devices. A different kind of connection came about, a more human one, one that echoed the creator God of the universe, one echoed uh, us as creative beings. Dr. Wu Song argued that for the Christian to be transformed, it means running counter-liturgies in our lives that run against the grain to the worship of our digital age. So whereas our devices are calling us to hyper-productivity that demands every hour to be spent in the production of of work, the counter-liturgy of the gospel is calling us to rest in the Lord and rest in the Lord of the Sabbath and look to Him as our shield to walk with integrity. Whereas the longing for connection leads us to feel dissonance between our online presence and our real selves, the counter-liturgy of the gospel calls us to stay rooted in the streams of living water found in the word, guarding our paths. Whereas justice is sought after in the digital realm through unforgiveness, outrage, and self-righteousness, the counter-liturgy of our confession of sin and our assurance of pardon is that we pursue justice with grace because of the grace given to us. And whereas the liturgy of our digital age tries to replace personhood with digital presence, the counter-liturgy recognizes that the central part of our faith is that Jesus became a human being, became incarnational. The Word made flesh and dwelt among us, that He dwelled with us in time and space and place, that nothing can replace the physical relationship of the body of Christ in the church and what it means to be in communion with one another. In other words, wisdom is not just something we do as individuals, but there is a collective spiritual formation that occurs when we gather together for worship. You know, the very fact that we're here together, singing songs, praying, taking precious time away from the demands of our digital landscape is a revolution worth celebrating. A counter-liturgy That centers the individual need and desire for the good, instead, of Christ and his church. Potlucks together, which we'll have afterwards, where we break bread and share our lives. Prayer, where we contemplate the need for God to speak into the depths of our sin. The taking of bread and wine and grape juice that remind us that he continues to transform us today and feed us spiritually. Dr. Song writes this in her book, the church of all places should function as a plausibility structure that frees us of the demand of permanent connectivity. It ought to help our capacity to commune with God, to inhabit time, and to be faithfully present to others and to places. As such, the church itself needs to wholly embrace the radical witness of being embodied and embedded with presence in a digitally saturated world. And that embedding and embodying is why ultimately true wisdom, our last point here today, leads us to Christ. In the book of Proverbs, wisdom is personified in the first section of the book through the symbolism of the one named Lady Wisdom, the wise woman calling out in the streets to tell everyone to flee from Lady Folly, uh, the one that would drive them into despair. In our passage today, wisdom is kept in the heart of of the Lord's people, the the righteousness and justice and equity given that the people of God could never earn, the great treasure worth seeking and finding, the one who answers when we call to wisdom's name, the words that we treasure and receive into our lives. You see, if you look at every single verse of our text here today, it points us not just to the symbolism of a personified wisdom, but the actual person of Christ who is the fulfillment of all that Proverbs and the book of wisdom is pointing to. Jesus is the logos. He is the word of life. Jesus is the pearl of great price whom we seek, the great treasure that we pursue, that nothing that we desire can compare with him. Jesus is the one who shuts the mouths of the Pharisees and the Sadducees who marvel at his knowledge and his understanding. Jesus is the one who shielded the vulnerable, healed the sick, brought comfort to the afflicted, guarding the path of justice against the systems and individuals of injustice and tyranny. Jesus calls himself the way, and the truth, and the life, that when we center ourselves and our lives around him, we we enter this pathway that Proverbs 2 is talking about, where our great shepherd watches over the way of his saints. And as Jesus promises, he has not lost one of them. Jesus sends us the Holy Spirit to watch over our hearts and our souls, the Spirit who is sent to help shape the counter-liturgies of our lives to be formed with God as the center of our lives and Lord over all. And he does this not going with the traditional wisdom of his day, he does this in humility, in meekness, in love, not through the sword, but by sacrificing himself in the greatest counter-liturgy in human history, dying in place of our sins and giving us the righteousness we could never earn. Through the injustice, Uh, the paradox of giving up his life so that we might be saved and justice might be accomplished. In doing so, he calls the church to do the same, to lay down their lives, and yes, perhaps even lay down your phones, to realize a world in need of a counter a wisdom that no app or technological advance could ever create, to embody Christ to other people in a world dying for, Desperate for real truth, real wisdom, real humanity, and a real connection. Many of you might know, but I actually did spend a couple of years as a professional or semi-professional video game player, um, and so I went to these tournaments and I competed. Um, you know, all across the country. There's actually um, a tournament being held this August with my game being featured. That's not important, <laughs> but like the the, uh, the um, you know, what I miss most about that time, as I, as I reflect upon that time where I was almost 100% always connected to this game and this screen, I realized that I didn't actually miss the game. Um, in fact, most professional video game players, if you have conversations with them, will spend most of their waking hours telling you how much they hate the game that they're playing. <laughs> Um, the the sort of bugs, the features, the the unfairness, the imbalances of it. Uh, But what I missed about my time uh, as a professional video game player was the incarnational aspect of it, Uh, playing and seeing old friends, uh, sharing laughs, being present with each other, uh, encouraging those who just suffered a devastating loss. I missed the presence of the people that were made in the image of God, even though most of them didn't share my Christian faith, I I actually got opportunities to pray with them, uh, to hear their objections to Christianity, to listen. Um, I got to treat them to meals. I got to provide beds for guys who couldn't afford hotel rooms. Um, I got to comfort those who were mentally struggling with life and, and just being a friend to them. Um... For those of us who are trying to navigate through the digital landscape, maybe perhaps uh, this is the way forward, to let others know that they're not alone, that we all have the ability to emulate Christ in our relationship with our tech. So City of Hope, I'll end by saying this. I am not naive to think, and nor do I want you to hear me saying that we should stop using our technology. Uh, you've missed the point of the sermon if that's the case. My prayer for you is that we all long for that our central desire of our hearts is the wisdom of the Lord found in the person of Jesus. And we long for his word to transform us and most importantly we long for Christ not just because we think the right things about him but because we love him. That this love would transform and change us as believers to consider this wisdom of our day through the heart and mind of Christ. As we go through this series in the next several weeks, that we allow the wisdom of Christ to guide us in this brave and new digital age. So let's pray together.